Qu'est-ce que ça peut vous faire Je suis comme je suis Je plais à qui je plais Je suis comme je suis Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So, to start out the show, let's dive right into the media frenzy over Marlene Schiappa posing in Playboy. Mm. She's a junior minister in the government. She posed fully clothed, it has to be said, for the magazine and gave an interview about women's rights in the issue that's coming out this weekend. Yeah, we'll see if sales go through the roof or <laughs> not. But the, the whole thing has hit a nerve, hasn't yeah, it? Partly yeah. because she herself, as a feminist blogger, who then got close to Emmanuel Macron when he was first running for president and who then became women's rights minister for a while, well, she's rubbed a lot of conservatives in particular up the wrong way. Yeah. But it's not just conservatives, even Prime Minister Elizabeth Bond has said the interview was not to her taste, that it was not appropriate. Yeah, not appropriate, though, uh, to be fair, in the current social context, yeah, which yeah. is what opponents on the left have also been saying, as millions of people are protesting against pension reforms and rise in cost of living. Here's this minister posing in a glamorous magazine with, with designer clothes. But Chiappa, who is very media friendly, has defended herself, saying that in France, women are free uh, to do what they want with their bodies. Yeah, yeah. I mean... <sighs> can't help but think, though, that she knew very, very well mm. how this would make headlines and that it was kind of a diversion tactic. Mm. I mean, we yeah, have the here... the timing, come the on. The timing, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have here, what, this pension reform that the government has pushed through without a parliamentary vote has angered a lot of people. Um, maybe this is, you know... Push your attention away from it and start getting mad about Playboy instead. <laughs> yeah, and you do also wonder whether maybe Schiappa may have wanted to draw attention away from an investigation that's underway mm -hmm. into alleged misuse of money for a charity fund that she was managing a few years ago when she worked uh, in the Interior Ministry. Yeah, lots of things to maybe want to move your attention away yeah. from, hoping yeah. all this will go away fade away from the public consciousness. So, you know, pose and playboy. Yeah. Well, why not? Yeah, so looking forward to reading the article. So, Alison, do you know this music? I do. This is Jean-Michel Jarre. He was a pioneer in electro music back in the 1970s. Now considered, to be fair, to be a little bit of a has-been on the music scene. Yeah, well, I mean, he is 74 years yeah, old. Yeah, fair you enough. you got to give him that. Well, he's in China this week with Emmanuel Macron. He's part of a cultural delegation accompanying the French president who's making his first state visit to the People's Republic in three years. Jarre made history in 1981 when he became the first Western musician to put on an official concert in China since the death of Mao Zedong in 1976. Yeah, two concerts in Beijing, three in Shanghai. Jarre actually apparently handed out tickets to people in the street to get <laughs> them to come, and he introduced electronic music to China, which had just begun opening to the world after the end of Mao's reign. So today, Jarre is getting on in years. He's married to a Chinese actress, and he's traveling with the French president. But of course, Macron's trip isn't about concerts. Uh, it's focused on trade and global issues like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But Jarre's presence is supposed to highlight the cultural ties between the two countries and also show a, a return to normalcy after three years of tight COVID restrictions in China kept out visits from foreign artists and celebrities. France has had a 
pretty good relationship with China over the years, hasn't it? Yeah, historically, yeah. But but recently, it's been kind of hewing to the European line, and Europe has been looking to distance itself from China. Macron is being accompanied on this trip by EU President Ursula von der Leyen, who's called China a partner, competitor, and systemic rival. Mm. France, however, continues to be very tied to China for trade, notably. Our colleague Jan van der Mata is something of a China specialist and has been following this visit. And I asked him about the significance of Macron's visit. Macron, of course, sees himself as one of the major leaders in, in Europe. And um, he's also in the mood to, I think, mollify a bit the mood of Xi Jinping, the Chinese uh, party leader and president, uh, telling him to be a bit more um, forthcoming towards the US and Europe and possible negotiations with Russia. I asked a China specialist, French China specialist, Jean-Pierre Cabestan, is an emeritus professor at Baptist University in Hong Kong. I asked him what the significance is of this meeting. First of all, it's the first visit in uh, quite a number of years. First visit took place prior to COVID, I think, in uh, 2019. So uh, I think it's important for the bilateral relationship between China and France. But also it's important because of the international context which is characterized by the war in Ukraine and the growing tensions between China and the United States. In addition to that, the European intention to reduce its dependence upon China is quite different from the context we had prior to COVID in 2019. He says there that this visit now is quite different from the visit pre-COVID. How are we looking at how different it is? Well, pre-COVID, there was still this this atmosphere of um, mutual investment, mutual trade, although there is a big trade uh, difference in favor of, uh, of China. But there is also, since Xi Jinping came to power, the whole international um, uh, outlook of China has changed, has hardened. China has, uh, has become much more assertive. One of the things, for instance, is the Chinese ambassador to France, who is very outspoken, very very critical of uh, French uh, press, French researchers. Also, France allowed some of the um, uh, parliamentarians and senators to go to Taiwan, which is, of course, anathema to the Chinese diplomacy, because you have to recognize Taiwan as a inseparable part of China. And if you go there as an individual or as a government representative, you implicitly recognize that Taiwan is independent. So the Chinese hated that. And before that, they let it go. They They said something and they were angry, but now they were really outspoken about it. And these things have taken an, um, a turn to the worse. I mean, but France and China have had good relations in the past. Yeah, actually, France was one of the earliest uh, countries of the West, which uh, recognized uh, the People's Republic, the communist government. They uh, came to power in 1949. In 1964, the French already acknowledged their relationship. They broke relations with Taiwan. I asked uh, Cabestan um, how that came about. That was under the goal at the time, a moment to both China and France, among the countries, tried to question the uh, alignment of the two blocs, the Soviet blocs, for China and the uh, American bloc for France. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think at, at the time, you know, and going into the 60s, there was a leftist movement in France that was developing a French communism. And, um, you know, China was offering up an interesting model for some people. Jean-Paul Sartre, he traveled to China extensively when it was in the high communist times. 
And um, there was a whole uh, circle around Sartre during the Cultural Revolution, which was, of course, a time when the whole country was upside down and millions of people uh, died. But that was not really known in the West. And they just saw the uh, the Chinese propaganda coming out and they saw it as a sort of um, alternative against the uh, Soviet sort of communism. And uh, they were looking at China as some kind of new light. And uh, it was really promoted in Parisian circles until it came finally out what, what really happened and people were tortured to death. And, so, and then they... Of course, they uh, they were disappointed. But there was a whole uh, time during the... No, that was in France, was also in 1968 when the rest was going on. That was exactly in the, the high time of the Cultural Revolution. There's an idea of maybe we're, we're seeing a sort of communism that could work and that isn't as repressive, but actually it turns out it was. Exactly. So, but obviously the relationship since then has changed, um, as you said, with the change of attitude from Xi Jinping. You said earlier that that Macron's going this week maybe to try to mollify him a little bit, where others maybe have failed? I mean, how much clout does Macron really have on Xi Jinping? Well, it's it's not very clear. To, if you look at what happened with Putin, um, the Russian president, uh, Macron obviously has tried that as well. When uh, even before the uh, the Russians invaded Ukraine, you remember these uh, meetings they had at this weird, incredibly long table, 20 meters long, I think. That's right. Macron on one end and Putin on the other. And it was a very strange sight because yeah, and, of COVID, presumably. They also had a lot of telephone conversations, some lasted for for several hours it was reported but it seems that in spite of all these discussions he didn't manage to prevent Putin from invading Ukraine so well it remains to be seen to what extent he can have any influence in that field on on China yeah because Europe and Macron would like to see China jump into the Ukraine crisis and and mediate right between Russia and Ukraine, although, you know, so far China has refused to do it and they've stayed, sort of stayed neutral. I mean, is it even reasonable for France to be asking for that kind of mediation role from China? It's not so unreasonable because, as you said, they, uh, the Chinese are formally are neutral, but they also have relations with Ukraine. And um, in the beginning of last year, it was the 30th anniversary of the creation of the Ukrainian uh, state uh, after the fall of communism. And they put it on the front page, indicating that they really put attention and importance to the sovereignty of uh, of the nation. So China also has a lot of deals with uh, with Ukraine, grain deals, for instance, and they're exporting gas and oil as well. So the, this relationship for them is very uh, awkward because they're caught in the middle between Russia and the Ukraine. So it's not so unreasonable for Macron or any other Western leader to ask um, Xi Jinping to be the mediator. So beyond the whole diplomacy thing, of course, a big thing between France and China is trade. And there's a big trade deficit. Um, France imports a huge amount of stuff from China and would like to do less of it, I guess, um, and exports to China less and less, although there's a lot of agriculture and some aviation. I mean, given this big trade imbalance... Can France really afford to put pressure on China? It seems like France is also kind of caught in the middle between its own needs, but also like Europe's stated goal of we want to step away from China. Like where where is France ultimately in terms of economics? This is, of course, the thing what China has been building up since uh, since 1978, since they opened up the economy to the outside world. And they invited uh, foreign investors to come into China. Uh, there is a huge amount of French companies investing huge amounts of money. For instance, Framaton, they built this big um, nuclear plant in the south of China, in uh, near Guangzhou. The major French car companies have 
enormous plants in uh, like uh, Renault, Citroën in, in China and Wuhan in Shanghai. It's yeah. all stone with their trains. Uh, there is Danone also. A lot of corporate interest there. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The other side of the coin is that in 2019, the European Union has said that uh, in an uh, official uh, policy paper that China is in this uh, quote-unquote uh, systemic rival. And that also started a bit of the, this idea of decoupling between the economies, which businessmen in all the Western countries were kind of shocked by and, and surprised by because it just doesn't fit at all in the mindset of uh, of business people. So it's a bit of a, a schizophrenic uh, situation that we have here. The Spanish painter Pablo Picasso died 50 years ago this Sunday, on the 8th of April 1973, in the town of Mougin, on Francisco d'Azur. When he died, Sarah, he was honoured with his very own museum, the Picasso Museum in Paris. Yeah, not many artists can claim that. No, no, it shows how important he is. Mm. Some 50 exhibitions are being laid on in France and around the world this year to commemorate his huge artistic legacy. France has really pushed the boat out. Mm. We've got Picasso and prehistory at the Museum of Natural History. There's one on ceramics on the Côte d'Azur. The Luxembourg Museum in Paris has one on Gertrude Stein and Picasso around the theme of Inventing language. Sounds interesting. The Pompidou Museum in Paris is showing 2023 of Picasso's drawings and prints, some of them never been published before. And to show just how he crossed artistic boundaries, there's an exhibition at the Picasso Museum in Paris curated by the fashion designer Paul Smith. That's just a little selection of what's on offer. That's a lot of Picasso. Mm. (laughs) Picasso overkill? Possibly, but can you have too much Picasso? Mm. That is the question. Mm. There does seem to be a consensus on the fact that he was a genius. And of course, he wasn't just a painter. He was a sculptor, a ceramicist, a poet, a playwright. But there's one thing he was not. French. Ah, huh. I would have thought that he would have become French after living here like most of his life. Yeah, France likes to claim him as one of its own, but he died, age 91, a Spaniard, having failed to get French nationality. Ah, interesting. So failed, so that means he, he asked for it. When did he When did he start? Yeah, he applied for nationality in 1940, so uh-huh. after the start of World War II, and just a few weeks before Germany invaded France. He must have felt insecure, I guess, about having a Spanish passport, you know, being identified with a country whose leader, General Franco, openly supported Hitler. Mm, I guess this wasn't maybe the best time for foreigners in France. No, it wasn't. The French authorities were keeping a keen eye on all foreign visitors and residents, and especially those with leftist leanings. And and Picasso was a leftist Mm -hmm. and made no secret about it. Um, So despite being a famous artist, Even then, uh, I guess the French authorities were worried he was a danger to the state. Yeah, the immigration authorities turned down his request for French nationality on political grounds. Mm. He was seen as an anarchist. And it turns out the police had been building up a file on him from the very early days when he first set foot in France. Okay, so when was that? Well, Picasso arrived in Paris in 1900. He was just 19. He didn't speak a word of French. In 1901, so age 20, he had his first exhibition in a Paris gallery. 
salary, but in that same year, the police started investigating him. They noticed he had links to a renowned Spanish art dealer and anarchist called Père Manach, who was already under police surveillance. You have to remember that France at the time was very nervous about the anarchist movement. They'd carried out bombings on the capital in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, did the police have any evidence that Picasso was plotting any attacks? Uh, it would seem not. Mm. Of course, he was a left-winger. He was a communist in the making, if you like. He openly supported the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War, for example. You could see that in Guernica, right? Mm. One of his most famous paintings. It shows the bombing of the Basque town by Franco's and Hitler's forces. But, but you said that he didn't realize he was under surveillance. And when and how did all this come to light? Well, it wasn't until after Picasso's death when police files of the artist from 1901 to 1940 were revealed and then published in a book in 2003. Ah, so like the Picasso papers, mm -hmm. as it were. <laughs> yeah. The book shows how these files figured among millions of French documents that had been seized by German occupation forces in 1940 and then handed over to Berlin. When Germany was defeated in 1945, the documents were transferred to Moscow and oh. then... Yeah, once the Soviet Union collapsed, they gradually found their way back to France bit by bit, but after Picasso's death. Well, that's quite a path for those mm -hmm. documents. Um, so Picasso himself never knew that he was under surveillance. Mm -hmm. um, did he renew his application to become French after liberation? No, he didn't. Once the war was over, although he would almost certainly have been granted mm. uh, French nationality, some Picasso experts say he was just too proud to, to give France a second chance, if you like. Too proud. So he spent the rest rest of his life, four decades in France as a Spaniard. Yeah, and what's more, he'd sworn he would never return to Spain under Franco, and then the dictator outlived him by two years, so Picasso never set foot in his native Spain again. He made France his home. He became a national treasure. Yeah, he lived in Paris, of course, famously on the left bank, where he painted, for example, Guernica. He also spent five years or so in a chateau that he bought in Normandy for the wonderful light and where he made some of his monumental sculptures. But he became increasingly drawn to the south of France and in the mid-50s he moved there permanently. It's interesting, there was an exhibition last year at Paris's Museum of the History of Immigration. It was called Picasso l'étranger, Picasso the foreigner or even stranger. Mm. Uh, and it traced how for four decades, so up until 1947 when he had his first major museum exhibition, he was perceived as an intruder, a foreigner, an ultra-leftist and this pained him. It made uh, for a very, very difficult first half of his life. Yeah, it must have had some kind of impact on how he viewed France. Yeah, he ended up preferring, according to the exhibition, artisans to fine art, the south to the north, and the regions maybe rather than the capital. And right until the end of his life, he was quoted as saying, I am a Spaniard. Sarah, painful periods. Many women have them, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, recent polls suggest that one out of two women here in France experience pain every month. It might just be cramps, uh, and then, well, you take a few painkillers and plow on. But in more chronic conditions, like, for example, endometriosis, it can be debilitating. Uh, you end up having to take time off work. 
It's not always easy to tell your boss why you have to do that, not to mention the financial cost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the state doesn't cover the first three days of sick leave. Exactly. And it's the same in Spain, which in February passed a law granting paid medical leave to women suffering severe period pain. It became the first European country to do so. And now there are calls for France to follow suit. I've read about a few companies in France who've already introduced menstrual leave for employees. Yeah, there are around a dozen. Uh, mm. The first was in 2021. They're mainly startup type companies. Uh. But a big step was taken some 10 days ago uh, when the town of Saint-Ouen, which is in the northern suburbs of Paris, became the first municipality in France to allow women to take time off if they suffer from severe period pain. 60% of the 2,000 people working for that that local authority are women. And under the experimental scheme, they'll now be able to take up to two days off per month, providing they can show a medical certificate confirming their condition, which is normal, isn't it? Yeah. RFI's Emma Garbou-Lorenzoni went to meet staff at Saint-Ouen City Hall, like Véronique Kojbati. She's been working there for more than 20 years. She suffers from a condition known as adenomyosis, which can be very painful, and she welcomes this new measure. Even taking painkillers all the time didn't relieve the pain, but I came to work anyway. I mean, two days of sick leave means losing 70 euros, so if you have to do that every month, it's a lot of money. From now on, I'll be able to use the new protocol of two days leave. The scheme was spearheaded by the town's Socialist Party mayor, Karim Boimran, after he realised so many of the women employed by the local council were suffering in silence. We had to do something. With this special leave of absence, up to two days per month, women will feel less guilty. But above all, it will make the issue of painful periods less of a taboo. Not everyone, however, is convinced about the merits of menstrual leave. Some think it won't have much of an impact and that women will be reluctant to take it. Others go much further. Violaine Defili-Pissabat is a spokesperson for the women's rights group Oser le Feminisme. And she says that if it were to become law, it could have a detrimental effect on gender equality in the workplace. It may seem like a good idea, but you have to think about the problem of discrimination during recruitment and the impact on career. Development. We know the questions employers ask themselves nowadays in France. If a man and a woman have the same skills, shouldn't I prefer the 30-year-old man to the 30-year-old woman? Because he is less likely to go on maternity leave. We'll have the same problem with menstrual leave. On the other hand, you could argue, Sarah, that introducing menstrual leave will help raise awareness among the male population overall. Jérôme Panconi, an employee at the town hall, says that has been his experience. We didn't talk about painful periods in our family. It was a taboo subject. I've since asked my sister about it, and it turns out she's been suffering for years. I had no idea. So, so Jérôme has seen the light. Yeah, thank goodness, <laughs> but many more have not, says Véronique Cochbati. I've talked to male colleagues about it, and they said, oh, I wish I had periods. Seriously, just to get the two days off. Some have been very annoying, saying things like, oh, they'll abuse the system using periods to have a moan. But why would there be abuse? The mayor wants to go further in improving working conditions for women, and he's pushing for France to follow the example of Spain. He's written to President Emmanuel Macron calling for the right to menstrual leave to be enshrined in French law.
au même titre qu'un congé individuel de formation. Just like you get time off for training or recuperation days, menstrual leave will also become standard practice. That's why it has to feature in our labor code, and to do that, it has to become law. So where is France in terms of making this a law? A number of mainly socialist MPs and a socialist senator, Helen conway Mouret, are currently drafting a bill. It would allow for up to two days of paid menstrual leave per month. The senator says it has to be part of the Labour Code so that it becomes a legal right. It's also important, she says, to talk about periods in the workplace, to reduce stigmatisation around that. And it's about saying women shouldn't be ashamed of being in pain and there needs to be a major cultural change on that front. Hmm. How likely is a law like this likely to pass? Well, there is still plenty of taboo around the subject of menstruation, isn't there? You've mm-hmm. reported on this uh, a while back. Yeah. So we can expect some resistance, perhaps from older lawmakers, especially from the political right. Because even in Spain, which has a socialist government, the law was adopted with a pretty slim majority. Italy toyed with the idea back in 2017, but dropped it because lawmakers were concerned about harmful stereotypes around women at work. Yeah, I mean, it is a real question Mm. because already, like the feminist woman said earlier, you know, younger women, you know, sometimes face trouble getting hired because, you know, employers think they might get pregnant. So I'd rather hire the man. Now, if an employer is facing the possibility of of a future employee being out two days a month, uh, you know, you might want to hire them either. Having said that, there's recently been a successful push to get more recognition for the medical condition of endometriosis, which which can be chronic, you know, causing very painful periods. And for decades, that was neglected, even though it impacts one in 10 women and can lead to infertility. The government is putting a lot more funding now into research on the condition. Feminist groups have unanimously applauded the progress that's been made on that. So the fact that some feminists are against paid menstrual leave, it suggests that it could be a very tough battle to get the bill passed. And even if it does get voted, will women in insecure work situations dare use it? I think it's far from sure. Facile à dire, je suis gnangnan. Et que j'aime trop les blablabla, mais non, 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 c'est important. Ce que t'appelles les ragnagna, tu sais, la vie, c'est des enfants. Et comme toujours, c'est pas le bon moment. Ah oui, pour les faire, là, tu es présent. Et pour les élever, il y aura des absents. So, that's it for this week's show. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompeiani. If you have questions or comments, please send us an email, spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And you can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. And you can get previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, April the 20th. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye.